Stone. I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're exploring the extremes of travel as opposed to traditional organised holidays. Unquestionably, Tom Morgan is our most eccentric and daredevil traveller to date. Tom is founder of The Adventurers, a company that organises, well, yes, you've guessed it, adventures, but these are not, by anyone's standards, everyday adventures. Far from it. It all started with the Mongol Rally, a journey by car across 10,000 miles of Asia. It's not a race that has a winner, but instead, getting lost, breaking down and the resulting chaos is the main part of it. Then there's also the Mongol Derby on horseback and the Gaucho Derby in North and South America. The rickshaw run in India, the monkey run on miniature motorbikes in Morocco and Peru, and a whole lot more. Interestingly, although the company is based in Britain, the majority of participants in these events are Americans who pay up to $14,000 to take part. Each of them also has to raise a set amount for the Cool Earth Climate Change Charity. Action Pack Travel's Louise Hall caught up with Tom at his home on the Welsh borders while he was preparing for his next adventure. Tom, welcome to our podcast. Globe-trotting mayhem, making the world a less boring place. How did it all start? Um, I think it probably started while I was at art school, which clearly makes no sense at all because uh, it wasn't very fine art. And I was studying sculpture, which doesn't help at all to clarify why, but I was made the Morgan Institute of Adventure Research, which invited people to come and take part in things like the Mongol Rally and set themselves on fire and other relatively stupid things. Myself and a friend tried to drive to Mongolia in a really, really bad car and with no preparation or planning and failed miserably, but had a, had a great time. I thought it was fun and made a website and invited everyone to join. And I assumed that thousands of people would instantly flock to the calling and only six teams joined us. And then it grew quite rapidly from that point. We finally realized that just writing that down as an email address was irritating. So we shortened it to the adventurists, which is much better. What's the biggest event you run? Is it the Mongol Rally? Yeah, that's the biggest in terms of number of people taking part at one time. That's about a thousand people. That sort of takes between three weeks to eight weeks to forever if you get really lost. It depends on how lost you get, but it's up to about 10,000 miles. So the concept of these adventures is pretty alternative. How does that differ from a normal car rally? You can be really prepared and have all the tools and all the parts and all the food you need in your car. But what's the what's the point? You, you won't interact with anyone. The whole point of it is to get out and interact with the world and get lost and stuck and engage with people and places. So, yeah, that's it's a fundamental part of it. Surely, courting disaster like this through lack of preparation can put you in danger and even survival can become an issue? I think there's a moment in any disaster where pure survival becomes all you think about. And then uh, there's others where the adventure, but I think for us, for the adventurists, I think it's a process. It's not really even particularly a location. I think you could have more adventure in your local Tesco's than you could doing a guided trek up Kilimanjaro, for example. I think that's about a process of approaching things with an inquisitiveness and rather than over planning that I think is important. If you go out to the world and you think, okay, I want to go and see the Taj Mahal, et cetera, et cetera, or some other tourist site, the pyramids, and you have in your head a, a kind of expectation of what that is from various 
documentaries or photographs online. And broadly speaking, those documentaries and photographs will be taken from the best angles at the best time of day. And your real world experience is going to be less good than your imagination. And I think also by having a sort of things that I'm going to do or see or objectives, it changes your experience of travel into this kind of commoditized process of ticking boxes and reduces experiences to just things to have done and that takes the 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 fun away from it i think you could have a lot more fun if you stumbled around in india with no particular goal and you came across a very small temple that you didn't know existed didn't know anything about it and you met the locals there and you understood a bit more what was going on about it but it was totally unexpected then you could going to some over polished site Uh, i think it's that process yeah frankly you could have a more interesting time finding a toilet than you can going to the Taj Mahal. Things like Instagram have done us a huge disservice. Instagram and mobile phones are the two things that have, broadly speaking, destroyed people's experience of travel. Firstly, people are, yeah, everyone is posting pictures of themselves staring into the sunset in exotic locations and living for a future reward as opposed to in the moment. It destroys your enjoyment at the moment. And I think, look, the whole thing is horrible, Instagram. Um, And then... Things like mobile phones, which know where you are, really make it hard to get lost. I remember, because we've been doing this before the advent of smartphones. Well, I mean, not quite, but before they were very prevalent. And I remember the first adventure I went on with a smartphone, which had Google Maps on. I was rubbish, completely rubbish, because I couldn't get lost. Because if it's there, you have to be kind of obstinately, kind of, you have to be like, okay, I'm not going to use the map. That just completely destroys it, because you can't get lost in the same way. And then you don't require, you're not requiring and talk to people and engage and you know the best bits are where it all goes horribly wrong not where you get to the finish line what's the point of doing that how many of these adventures do you run each year well this year none (laughs) (laughs) but normally about uh just under 30 and how many people will you take each year they're not all as crazy big as the mongol rally so probably between three and four thousand people a year are they all races are they all competitive is that the idea behind them no, not at all. The Mongol Rally, for example, isn't. Um, some of them are. The Mongol Derby, the horse race, and the Gaucho Derby, and the new one we're doing in the States, are competitive. Uh, the air race was competitive. The yacht race was competitive. It depends on the event. Sometimes it's more about getting lost and stuck, and the competitive element, apart from being totally illegal on public roads, doesn't really add much. What's been the biggest headache to put together? We used to run one in South America called the Motor Taxi Junket, which is these terrible, <laughs> terrible three-wheeled machines. They're like a rubbish tuk-tuk, where they take a, a, a motorbike, a fairly underpowered 125 usually, and uh, cut the back wheel off and weld a chair onto the back with two wheels. And they are terrible. We started organising that in Peru and we had an agreement with Honda, who made the best of them out there. And just sort of one day before they would do, they'd made them all, we paid them, we were all ready to go, great, happy days. People were arriving in country, and then Honda decided to pull the plug because uh, there was a major news article, and the director of Honda Peru decided he didn't want to be involved with such wallies as us. We had to find enough motor taxis, and the only company that made them, had enough of them, was based in Iquitos, which is the biggest town in the world with no roads going to it. So we had to put them on the back of a raft and float them up the Amazon, at which point the rainy season came early, and a two-day journey became a five-day journey. Then when we got back to finally got to land, the axle on the truck snapped in half in the middle of the rainforest. Anyway, there were a whole litany of disasters involving helicopter crashes and 
It was a total nightmare. We got there about two weeks late. Then more recently, there's been your personal balloon escapade. I think it's the craziest thing I've ever seen anyone do. Let me get this straight. You tied a bunch of party helium balloons to a chair and rose thousands of feet in the sky over South Africa and lived to tell the tale. What's this all about? Yeah, so there's a thing called the Gordon Bennett Cup. Gordon Bennett, being a big hero of mine, invented a ballooning race, which is absolute genius. Gas ballooning race in about 1910. You basically have one fill of gas, helium or hydrogen, and then you all take off from the same place. And the person who gets the furthest in any given direction is declared the winner. There's something wonderfully simple about that. And I think ballooning is just inherently adventurous because you don't have that level of control. So you're kind of engaging in an adventure, whatever happens. Other people had tied themselves to party balloons before, and I just thought it would make a great race. So we went out to to do a test run for a race. It was originally supposed to be myself and a friend buddy. We're going to race each other. And how high did you reach in that balloon cluster? I think I was about 8,000 foot. Insane. You could definitely, we would have gone higher, but there's some airspace, so we had to stay at a certain height. Because these are just party balloons you order off the internet, they're not exactly structural. There's a certain point above which we wondered whether they would burst, so we filled some up more than others, so that if either the heat from the sun made them expand and burst, we would have an early warning and could descend before falling much faster to the ground. How big were the balloons? We did an experiment in the UK with tethered balloons and we tried the biggest because you get the greatest lift for a given number of balloons and they were eight foot, but they were a total pain in the bum. They were so they were so lifty they would tear themselves in half. So we were down to sort of four foot balloons, four and a half foot, something like that. It seemed to work quite well. And different colours, strangely, burst differently. <laughs> yeah, you have to see that photo to believe it. It's gonna be on the show notes. How many balloons did you have? Was it 100? Yeah, it was 100 in the end, yeah. And some of those were smaller ones for control balloons. To go up, I had a barrel of two water butts, camping water butts tied to the chair that had water in and a tap. So you just let some of the water out. Or at one point, and that would change the, the, you'd then start ascending and then you could release a balloon or pop a balloon to go down. Totally insane. How did you feel up there? Like a bird looking down? Were you not terrified? Yeah, I was terrified. A hot air ballooning is you're quite actively involved in flying to a certain degree because you're constantly heating and this is very noisy, whereas this is just completely still and silent. We Obviously, you're travelling with the winds. Doing about 47 kilometres an hour, but it, you know you wouldn't know. It's completely still and silent. It's very strange and cool and terrifying all at the same time. It's a good combination. And going at that speed, how do you come into landing? With your eyes closed. <laughs> Actually, I just waited. The airspeed often increases with altitude. So I was only doing that speed up high. And then as it come down to the ground, a bit of waiting and planning and think, knowing what the weather's going to do roughly. And then a bit of luck, because in the end, it was a very, very gentle touchdown. A couple of times I bounced off the ground and couldn't get down. It's often warmer at the ground. So I'd come down and hit warm air and bounce back up again. Got there in the end. And the other thing to avoid is obviously electricity pylon. How did you manage that coming down process? Release enough balloons to start coming down and then just wait. And it's relatively slow and controlled. I actually think it's a pretty safe form of flight. You have, you know, it's not like you're in an airplane where one wing can snap off and you fall like a rock. You have to have a fairly traumatic event for all of them to burst at once. The goal would be to have a similar thing where you start with a given amount of lift above your own body weight and what you're carrying. 
And then the person who gets the furthest and manages to get themselves back is the winner. To get the furthest, you would have probably thrown all of your supplies and perhaps your clothes overboard to get that extra few metres. And then uh, you'll be running back through the (laughs) savannah naked. Another of your flying events involves paramotors, which are what they say they are. It's like having a lawnmower attached to your back and a parachute. Tell us the story behind the Icarus Trophy. Yeah, so... uh, a friend of mine is a guy called Jilo who runs a company that makes them in Dorset. And I just sort of hadn't paid much attention to it. And then I realized it's an incredibly accessible form of flying. You, know, you don't need a license. Your plane doesn't require registration. It's just, I mean, it's not cheap, but it's it can be cheap if you buy secondhand equipment. And then I looked around at what people were doing with it. To me, it all seemed a bit, a bit boring. Lots of flying around in circles and competitions for who could be the most fuel efficient and things like that. I think there's such a great tool for getting into trouble and having an adventure because you can kind of take off and land anywhere and fill them up in a petrol station yeah we launched the icarus trophy and we did it in the states because it's massive and cool and there's a bigger community of pilots over there and yeah, we did a thousand miles by paramotor which was the sort of first time that people had done long distance racing and it was great fun i learned to fly for the race they are amazing things and they cover good distance with even one fuel tank. Yeah, they can do. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of variables. So there's your body weight, there's the engine efficiency, the efficiency of your wing and the direction of the wind. You can get sort of a couple of hundred K on a good day if you're on a, on a good tank, if you have good good fortune and a tailwind, but you're more likely to be getting the 100 or so. You can certainly cover the miles. What's next? What plans do you have for the future? We have lots of new plans. At the moment, we're launching our own adventure machines that we'll be releasing, one of which will be a flat pack biplane, which I want to fly across the Pacific. You order it online a bit like Ikea and then make it at home. It's going to be a disaster, but we'll have fun making that disaster. What else is in the pipeline? So we are just about to launch properly Ventura is our machine thing where we're going to launching that with our own version of a monkey bike which first is uh, sort of the ultimate adventure machine so we've made it more adventure machiney and made it a lot cooler and it flies as well which is handy to have a flying monkey bike we've got in development an electric monkey bike and we're just trying to work on getting the range up to something quite ridiculous which would be quite cool hold on rewind you said that also flies Oh, yeah. Yeah, it flies. Yeah. It's, you strap a paramotor onto it and it takes off. And then it will also have it. You'll be able to strap it. Hopefully the next round will be strapping a boat, like a kind of inflatable tube so it can become a boat. So it's the ultimate adventure machine monkey bike. Have you had any Guinness World Record attempts? We held the Guinness World Record for the world's longest horse race. And how far is the race? It's a thousand kilometres and you change horse. We basically based it on Chinggis Khan's ancient postal system. So we rebuild that across the Mongolian steppe every summer. And you change horse every 40k. So the horses are always fine and the riders are always knackered. We've split that off into a separate company because we're launching a whole world series of horse races called the Equestrianists. We've got one in Argentina and we're basically looking around the world for the kind of places where humans and horses and history have all mingled together to make kind of interesting cultures and and often horse breeds. That's now a separate company which is specialising in the world's Equestrianists. Equestrianist World Series. There's not that many wild places left in the world. But roads and car parks and shops everywhere i think we need to protect some of these places otherwise there'll be nowhere left for adventures
Where can people find out more about the adventures you offer? So we are on the interweb, of course, on the adventurists.com and the equestrianist.com. That's probably the best place. Or the um, hideous social media platforms, we're on all of those. Much to work shame. Tom, thank you very much for appearing on the show. And we wish you the best of luck with your future adventures worldwide. No worries. Thanks for having me on. We'd love any of you listening to tell us about your own craziest holiday experiences. Email us on speakpipe.com forward slash voice hyphen recorder to peter at actionpackedtravel.com. That's speakpipe.com forward slash voice hyphen recorder. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpackedtravel.com. Or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. <laughs>